Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it on just about a daily basis for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 85 of History of the Marine Corps. World War I, Introduction, Part 2. Our last episode introduced World War I. We started in the mid-1800s and spent a lot of time breaking down the events leading up to the Great War. Empires started to crumble due to nationalism, and the conflicts that took place during this time would merge into the world going to war. This episode continues the introduction of the U.S. getting into World War I. We spent some time going over the Schlieffen Plan, and we discussed some very high-level engagements happening in Europe. We also introduced a few events that resulted in the United States declaring war on Germany, and we conclude the episode by reviewing how the U.S. and Marine Corps were preparing for war. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Our last episode left off with most of Europe engaged in combat. In less than a month after Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, officially starting World War I, the German Empire, Austria-Hungary, Serbia, Russia, France, Belgium, Montenegro, and Japan officially picked a side. Before World War I kicked off, the major powers were broken up into the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente. The nations in these two factions remained the core of the alliance, but with more countries coming into the fray, the Triple Entente, originally made up of Britain, France, and Russia, became known as the Allied Powers. The Triple Alliance, originally consisting of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy, would become the Central Powers, but Italy remained neutral due to their secret treaty with France. The United States government remained neutral during the start of the war but U.S. citizens did not. Most Americans supported the Allied powers, but some backed Germany in this war as well. U.S. citizens helped Europeans through relief efforts, volunteered as nurses and hospital drivers, and a few even fought early in the war and joined the French Foreign Legion. One of the most notable was Alan Seeger, a poet who wrote, I Have a Rendezvous with Death, a favorite poem by John F. Kennedy but most of the country agreed with President Wilson's stance and wanted to keep the United States out of the war. Across the pond, things started to escalate quickly, and more European colonies and other empires were drawn into the fight. A few years before the war began, General Count Alfred von Schlieffen 
chief of the Imperial German General Staff, envisioned a plan to help defend Germany against an attack on two fronts, one coming from Russia to the east and the other from France to Germany's west. Schlieffen estimated the Triple Entente would outnumber German forces 5 to 3, and the only way to deal with those odds is to strike hard and fast. Germany needed to take an offensive stance. When Schlieffen wrote his strategy, Russia had just fought a war against the Empire of Japan. They had up to 120,000 casualties during this conflict, and Schlieffen believed the Russians would take longer to organize its troops due to their diminished state. He focused on France first. His plan called for seven-eighths of the German forces to head to France and bypass their strong defenses by marching through Belgium and the Netherlands. While part of the German army was fighting the French along the border, the remaining forces would flank the French from the north, surround Paris, and push the lingering French soldiers south, away from the German border. Assuming the threat of France was neutralized, German troops would be sent to the Russian border next. However, Schlieffen didn't have a plan for the Russians. When World War I kicked off, the scenario envisioned by him in 1905 was exactly what they got, and the Germans put his plan into action. But the war started nine years after Schlieffen drafted the strategy, and the plan's creator was no longer chief of staff. He was succeeded by Helmuth von Moltke. When Helmuth took over, he made changes to the plan. One of the adjustments focused on Germany's invasion of France. Instead of marching through Belgium and the Netherlands, the modified plan allowed German troops to march through Belgium only. Moltke assumed supplies to Germany would be blocked by surrounding countries, and he wanted to leave the Netherlands open to serve as a supply passageway into Germany. He also put more emphasis on defending Germany's east, which wasn't the priority of Schlieffen. But as Germany would soon find out, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. The Schlieffen plan would ultimately fail due to a few reasons. The casualty rate of soldiers was high, and Germany couldn't replace them fast enough to march into Paris, seize the city, and defend against enemy troops on their border. In addition to their lack of numbers, German troops weren't properly trained to fight this war. Their active duty forces were ready to take on two fronts, but their reserves lacked knowledge in basic military tactics and training in Germany's more sophisticated warfare technology. They even lacked reserve units that specialized in artillery and the use of machine guns. Although the manpower was theoretically there, they couldn't provide the support needed to implement the Schlieffen plan. Germany also relied on railways to transport its troops to and from the front lines. But that reliance came with certain risks. Soldiers couldn't be transported on trains to locations without railroad tracks. When the Germans invaded Belgium, Belgian and French troops destroyed train tracks along the German intended path as they retreated. These factors exposed another weakness to the Schlieffen plan. There was no room for compromising. Once Germany put the plan into action, they couldn't turn back. There wasn't even a plan B. It didn't account for any miscalculations, and any scenario the Germans faced outside of this strategy significantly impacted their progress. They started to run into issues. 
Germany never considered how they would transport troops if railway tracks were destroyed. When they first attacked during the Battle of Liege, Allied forces couldn't defend against their firepower, and both the Belgians and French retreated. But along the way, they destroyed more train tracks. The lack of rail transport significantly reduced the speed Germany advanced into France. Germany targeted this city specifically for its major train hub, but due to the destruction of railway tracks, their estimate of two days to seize the town took them two weeks. This delay gave Allied forces more time to set up troops along Germany's eastern and western fronts. Another shortcoming of the plan is that it didn't effectively consider communication. Germany's transmission technology was adequate for most units, but the troops fighting on the front lines didn't have access to newer technology, and they relied on pigeons and flag signals to communicate with the command. This outdated technology meant military leaders didn't receive up-to-date information from frontline troops, which impacted the effectiveness of real-time strategies. To add to Germany's struggles, Russia launched an offensive attack on their eastern borders, faster than Germany anticipated. Although the German troops would push back the Russians, Austria-Hungary was defeated, and Russia managed to push their troops further into the Central Powers' territory. This wasn't expected by Germany. Germany didn't think Russian forces could organize this quickly. But the plan was originally drafted in 1905, nine years before the Great War started. They never updated their plan to account for Russia's advances in modernization. Not only did Russia mobilize faster than anticipated, but they did it faster than France, which threw off the plan even further resulting in German troops being sent to the east before France was taken care of. To make the situation worse, some of the Bavarian forces defending the Western Front refused to fight in the east. They didn't want to defend Prussia. And as a result, Germany had no other option but to send troops from Belgium, which added a lot more time and was a hell of a lot more difficult to arrange logistically. There were many shortcomings of the Schlieffen Plan, but the major downfall was its lack of mobility. On the Western Front, French and British troops were having trouble stopping the Germans, and they retreated to Marne. Here, they reorganized and set up additional defenses, stopping German troops from advancing further. So instead of heading into Paris, which was the original plan, Germany's left flank on the Western border turned towards the Allied forces to surround them. France had a reserve unit in Paris, and they soon joined the front lines as well and participated in the first battle for the Marne, and helped stop Germany's advancement. The combined effort by Allied powers effectively breached German ranks, and they were able to force Germany to retreat north. The Schlieffen Plan didn't consider this much resistance from Allied powers, and Germany's retreat exposed more weaknesses in the plan. As the front lines began to settle down a bit, the two forces constantly tried to outflank each other on the Western Front to establish defensive lines towards the coast of France. They both fought their way to the sea, and Germany put additional effort into seizing ports in Belgium to confiscate resupplies from Britain, effectively removing those resources from Allied troops. 
While German and French forces were making their way to sea, the Belgian army barely escapes being surrounded by German troops and joins the remaining Allied forces on the western front lines. Here, both powers are deadlocked, and both sides begins to dig trenches to protect them from machine gun fire and artillery. Over 400 miles of trenches were dug from the coast of Belgium to the Swiss border. Both sides were now at a standstill, and they threw everything they had at each other. Britain's Royal Navy established a blockade in the North Sea, and attempted to prevent supplies coming to and from Germany. In response, Germany sent submarines to British territory, with the purpose of sinking all ships traveling in this area. Both forces also began to use aircraft to help in the war. During World War I, aviation was still a new invention, and the original purpose was to observe the battlefield and provide intelligence to military commanders. Aircraft were eventually weaponized with bombs and machine guns, much like the evolution of drones today. In honor of all the air wingers listening, I'll be dedicating a future episode to the history of Marine Corps aviation, and we'll dig into aviation in World War I a little deeper. The Germans relied on their zeppelins for aerial attacks on European cities. The defense of trenches was effective on the front lines against the aircraft and most other weapons. The efficiency of trenches caused a deadlock in the front lines, and both belligerents began to deploy chemical warfare to help gain inches on the battlefield. There were three chemical weapons responsible for most deaths in World War I. Phosgene accounts for 85% of fatalities during the war. The gas is colorless and smells like moldy hay. Troops didn't always know they were hit with the gas, but after a day or two, their lungs would fill with fluid and they would slowly suffocate. Chlorine, which was six times weaker than phosgene, smelled of bleach and produced a yellowish-greenish cloud. It mostly irritated the eyes, nose, lungs, and throat, but high enough doses would suffocate troops. Mustard gas, known as the king of the battle gases, was also used. Troops described its smell to either garlic, gasoline, rubber, or dead horses. Its effects took a while to kick in, but a few hours after exposure, a soldier's eyes would become bloodshot, start to water, and become increasingly painful sometimes resulting in temporary blindness. The skin blistered as well, especially in softer areas such as the armpits and the groin. When the blisters popped, they became infected. The open air of the battlefield caused the mustard gas to dissipate, resulting in fewer deaths, but the number of troops injured was over 120,000. The standstill combined with a high casualty rate forced all Europeans to contribute to the war. And this included women, who took jobs in weapons factories to help produce supplies needed at the front lines and freed up available men to fight. Colonies around the world were now engaged in war. The footprint of this engagement is incredible and difficult to imagine. You should have a good idea of what the front looks like in Europe but most colonies in Africa are now engaged in some type of conflict. You also have Austria and New Zealand in the mix, part of Indonesia, Korea, India, Canada, and northern countries in South America. Keep in mind, this war has only been going on for around two months. 
In October 1914, the Central Powers started to push back Russian troops. The Ottoman Empire, with its long history of fighting Russia, took advantage of this opportunity and joined the Central Powers, officially bringing the Middle East and Northern Africa into the war. A month later, Britain used its Indian army and launched a new attack. They established another front along the borders of modern-day Turkey, Georgia, and Armenia. The goal of this attack was to control the oil resources in the Middle East, a target Britain had wanted for some time now. In response to this move, Ottoman Empire troops, led by Germany, launches the raid on the Suez Canal in January to cut off supply lines from Britain to India. The Ottoman Empire would fail in its attack and saw more than 2,000 casualties, while Britain had 32 killed and 130 wounded. The Ottomans also failed along the Turkish border. The empire blamed Armenia and accused them of helping Russia with their attack. More than half of the Armenian population was massacred in retaliation. Today, this is known as the Armenian Genocide and is recognized by most countries throughout the globe. Turkey still denies the genocide today. Allied forces attempted to weaken the Ottoman Empire further, and they launched the Gallipoli Campaign in March. Their goal was to take control of the Turkish Straits, and Allied powers traveled from the Aegean Sea through the Dardanelles Strait and into the Sea of Marmara, effectively exposing Constantinople to naval bombardment. But when they made their way up the Dardanelles Strait, they encountered multiple mines and were forced to retreat. Allied forces headed back to the drawing board, and a month later, they attempted to launch an amphibious landing near the strait. Ottoman forces were able to defend its location, creating another deadlock. On May 7, 1915, a German submarine attacked the British ocean liner Lusitania. Within 20 minutes, the ship sank, killing 1,198 out of the 1,959 passengers on board. Included in the deaths were 128 U.S. citizens. This devastating incident infuriated the United States. Not just the government, but the entire country was angry about the death of their fellow Americans. The U.S. sent three notes to Berlin protesting Germany's actions. Germany apologized to the United States, attempted to pay reparations for the American lives lost, which the U.S. refused, and slowed down its submarine warfare as an attempt to prevent the U.S. from joining the war. A month after this event, Italy, which was originally allied with the Central Powers, switched sides, and they joined Allied forces after negotiating for new territory seized from Austria-Hungary. Italy launched an offensive along its eastern border against Austria. Bulgaria would join the Central Powers in October, with the intent of controlling the Balkan states. They launched an attack as well and invaded Serbia, along with Austrian and German troops. Allied forces rushed to Serbia's aid. They landed in Greece to confront Bulgaria from the south, but in doing so, violated the neutrality agreement of Greece. In February 1916, Germany embarked on one of the longest battles of World War I, in the Battle of Verdun. A month after that battle started, Portugal joined the Allied powers 
and they began confiscating German ships anchored in its ports. In response, Germany declares war on Portugal, and their colonies in Africa go to war. In May of 1916, the German and British Navy went head-to-head -head in the Battle of Jutland, one of the biggest naval battles in World War I. England's 151 naval vessels went up against Germany's 99, and the battle resulted in Britain suffering 6,100 deaths, 674 injuries, and 113,000 tons sunk, compared to Germany's 2,500 killed, 500 wounded, and 62,000 tons sunk. In June 1916, Russia attempted another attack during the Brusilov Offensive. Russian General Alexei Brusilov launches a surprise attack covering territory stretching over 300 miles. The purpose of such a large front was to deny the Germans and Austrians the opportunity to concentrate their defenses and counter the Russians' attack. An estimated 500,000 to a million Russians were casualties of this effort, but their sacrifice wasn't in vain, and this was one of the most disastrous events for the Austrian Empire, resulting in lost territory and many of its troops deserting their forces. Austrians also faced a casualty rate of 1 to 1.5 million, and German casualties were around 350,000. Back on the Western Front, British forces launched an attack with tanks in July, during the Battle of Somme. This battle was the first time tanks were used, but their appearance wasn't impressive. Many of the tanks broke down before ever reaching the front lines. By the end of 1916, the number of casualties resulting from the war was massive. The multiple deadlocks exhausted troops, and the morale dropped to new low levels. Britain's blockade in the North Sea effectively cut off food supplies to Germany, causing widespread famine. This event is known as a turn-up winter, and was one of the harshest years Germany faced. The Allied forces didn't have that problem, and even though the United States remained neutral, they supplied many resources to support the war. As a response to the United States supporting Allied powers, Germany resumed its unrestricted submarine warfare. Their mission was to sink all commercial and military ships they encountered. In addition to deploying submarines, Germany also sent a message to Mexico, offering alliance and requesting they help attack the United States from the south. This message is known as the Zimmerman Telegram. Quote, We intend to begin on February 1, unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavor, in spite of this, to keep the United States of America neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together, generous financial support, and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The settlement in detail is left to you. You will inform the President of the above most secretly as soon as the outbreak of war with the United States of America is certain, and add the suggestion that he should, on his own initiative, invite Japan to immediate adherence, and at the same time, mediate between Japan and ourselves. Please call the President's attention to the fact that the ruthless employment of our submarines now offers the prospect of compelling England in a few months to make peace. Unquote. 
Britain intercepted this message and sent it to the United States. This secret attempt at a treaty with Mexico left President Wilson with little option. On April 6, 1917, the United States officially declared war against Germany. Although it was a couple of months before the U.S. sent forces to Europe, this was something they were planning for since 1916. The Naval Act of 1916, also known as the Big Navy Act, authorized an enormous naval building program of 10 42,000-ton battleships, 6 battlecruisers, 10 scout cruisers, 50 destroyers, and 67 submarines. On August 29, 1916, Congress also passed the National Defense Act, which substantially increased every military branch. The authorized strength of the Army was increased to 200,000 and the National Guard to 450,000. The Marine Corps also received an upgrade to this act, and around a 60% increase of troops were authorized. When this act was signed, the Corps had a strength of 354 officers and 10,727 enlisted. Marines were distributed amongst 25 posts in the United States and 8 posts overseas. They also served in detachments on board 32 different vessels. The Marine Corps would face one of the most challenging and greatest experience when the U.S. entered World War I. We discussed a few of these challenges during the Banana Wars, specifically Haiti and Nicaragua, but in addition to the aggressive U.S. foreign policy, the Corps faced challenges with training and augmentation, as well as keeping up with its multiple responsibilities at home and in other areas where Marines were deployed. During the short time the United States would be involved in the Great War, the Marine Corps expanded seven and a half times compared to its pre-war numbers. This huge increase gave the Marine Corps the capacity it needed to provide substantial power to the front lines in Europe and help support the U.S. Army during operations in France. Thanks for listening. The U.S. has officially entered into World War I, and next week, we'll break down how the Marine Corps will prepare to confront German troops. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Castles of Steel, Britain, Germany, and the Winning of the Great War at Sea by Robert K. Massey. I presume when most of us think of World War I, images of troops fighting in trenches on the front lines in France pop into our minds. At least that's how it is for me. Naval battles during the Great War aren't really a thought, but they were an essential factor in Allied success during World War I. Massey goes into great detail in his book and covers every significant naval engagement during the war. I particularly enjoyed his breakdown of the Battle of Jutland, the largest naval battle fought during World War I. This incredible naval battle in the North Sea involved two behemoth naval forces, 250 ships, and about 100,000 men fought during this engagement, and the casualty rate was enormous. If you're into naval warfare, I strongly recommend this audiobook. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory to download this audiobook for free and receive a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. If you like what you're hearing, 
check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.